0: I actually had an introduction written for my sermon that was kind of fun. It doesn't seem quite appropriate. Last week, I asked you the question that was posed in our life group. Is it possible to be sad, deeply sad, and, and to have joy at the same time? Is it possible in the midst of unspeakable evil to find joy? And I suggested the answer was yes, because happy and sad, I think, are based on external cir- circumstances. If things are going well, maybe I get what I want for Christmas, I can be happy at least for a time. If things aren't going well, if they're going really poorly, there may be deep sorrow, Interesting to reflect on an event of the first Christmas. We don't typically read uh, the story around the Christmas tree. It's quite similar to the events of this week. Matthew chapter 2, when Herod heard that the Christ was born in Bethlehem, when he heard that the wise men had escaped him, he gave orders for every baby boy under the age of two to be massacred in Bethlehem. We read these words. Voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. So, what if babies are crying? What if you have gifts wrapped under a tree in Newtown, Connecticut that will not be opened now? What if things are not going well? I suggested that you can find joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of sad. I asked this question further, how do you do that? How do you cultivate and keep a heart of joyful thanksgiving when things are not going well, when things are not going according to plan, when things aren't going the way we think they should be, when things happen that shake us to our very core and cause us to question, maybe even to doubt? My wife has a friend that she works with. who said and my wife said she will point to this issue and say and there's a god we remember paul is writing his letter to the philippians from prison he's in chains very likely chained to a roman guard been there for up to 4 years now not to mention his other imprisonments for the gospel his beatings his numerous sufferings for the cause of christ yet we read this letter and it sounds like he's writing from a picnic. And we'll find that he's writing to a church which is also suffering. How does he do it? How does he write to a church and actually say the words rejoice? I I, I say it again, rejoice. How can you find Mary in Christmas in the midst of life's very great and deep challenges? Well, last week we Saw so in the first couple of verses that we can find joy by remembering that we're first bond servants, we're slaves of Jesus Christ. He's the new master, a whole lot better than that old taskmaster of sin. And, and, and so as we surrender, not my will but yours be done, there's joy in that. Second, we remember that we are saints in Christ Jesus. All of us are holy ones in Christ, which is another key thought in the book. Everything that we are, everything that we have, is because of the gospel of Christ. We've actually been given grace from God the Father through His Son, resulting in peace. Peace with Him and peace with you. These are things the world can't touch. It doesn't matter. I said this last week. It doesn't matter what challenges we're facing externally. Is that true? Can we have an inward joy that can't be taken from us? Brings us to Paul's thanksgiving. In all of his letters except Galatians, he offers a thanksgiving for his readers. Uh, This was another common practice in the Greco-Roman world, a, a day of letter writing. But again, Paul takes it and he Christianizes it because the gospel touches everything he touches. His thanksgiving actually extends through verse 11. We'll only get through verse 6 today. Look at it with me. Philippians 1, verses um, 3 to 6 say this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Jesus, I thank my God in all my remembrance of You, always offering prayer with joy from prison, writing to a church that was suffering in much the same way that He was. I think we find here some some things that we can do to, to, to bolster, to encourage, and to sustain joy. The outline as we jump into the text, we're going to find that Paul was a man of unceasing prayer. We find that a little easier in times like this, don't we? He was a man of others-focused prayer. Again, a little easier, isn't it? He was a a man of thankful prayer, of gospel-centered or gospel-focused prayer, and then of God-confidence prayer. You want to Remain joyful in trying times. Here's how you do it. First, in the midst of difficult circumstances, Paul was a praying person. I am always, he says, offering prayer. Again, it's very interesting that we are more likely to pray when things are going badly than when things are going well. We didn't break up into little communities to pray last Sunday. You see, when things are going well, we tend to think, I got this, I can can handle life. Of course, we can't. And so, is it any wonder that challenges come our way which drive us to our knees, so that we stay connected with the Master, with the Father, who alone knows all things, who alone knows why and how, who who alone knows can do anything about our present circumstances. So I want to suggest that there is even a sense in which difficulties, to get this, difficulties are a key to joy because it drives us to our Father. Don't miss that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. I don't want you to leave last week or this week thinking, okay, got this, I got to muster up joy. Won't work. It is a fruit of being connected with and filled with the Spirit of God. It's why we're driven to our knees in prayer. It's there that we find joy. Love, joy, peace. Remember those? Galatians 5. So if things are going badly, one purpose is to reconnect us with the source of joy. Second, in the midst of these difficult circumstances, Paul does not say, I thank my God upon every remembrance of me and my miserable circumstances. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And as I think of you, this brings me joy. His prayer here was not primarily for himself. That doesn't mean that he didn't pray for himself. I'm sure he did. But when he was faced with a trial... His prayer was others-focused. How much of the time when we're facing difficult circumstances do we become rather me-focused? God, help me. God, get me out of this mess. In the midst of this personal trial, Paul was a praying person, but his was an others-focused. Because an others focus can lift our eyes beyond our circumstances to the needs and joys of others. Nothing wrong, again, nothing wrong with praying for yourself, for personal needs. But we must also keep a focus on others, praying for others who have needs and in whom we can find joy. Notice how he prayed f- for them all, all of the time. He uses that word all, all the way through this Thanksgiving. This doesn't mean that all of his prayers for them. What he means is whenever he prayed, he, he prayed for them all with Thanksgiving, always thanking God for them, thanking God for them all. Don't miss that. It wasn't like he was just praying for those overseers and those deacons, although they probably needed it most. It doesn't mean that he was just praying for Lydia or the jailer. When he remembered the church in Philippi, he prayed for all of them. Third, Paul was very obviously a kind of redundant and thankful person. Even in the midst of difficult personal trial, he was thankful for others. Think about it. If you dwell, um, if all that you dwell on are your personal challenges, it's no wonder you are a depressed person that nobody wants to be around. But if when facing personal challenges, you force yourself to remember others and pray for others, Paul says it brings joy. So that Paul could say, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. When I think of you, In the midst of my difficult circumstances, chained to this soldier, it brings me joy. I'm laughing. He's wondering what's going on. By the way, a couple of my commentaries uh, rightly pointed out that if you study Paul's letters and these Thanksgiving portions, you'll find that he is primarily thankful for people. Not stuff. Not possessions. He was thankful for people. Because people bring lasting joy. Goes on, verses 5 and 6, to talk specifically about what he was thankful uh, as he thought about people that brought him this joyful remembrance. In verse 5, he says, I am thankful for your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day that I arrived in Philippi, 10 years ago, you somehow participated in the gospel. What does that mean? I'm thankful for your participation in the gospel. Lots of discussion, and it primarily falls in one of two camps. The word participation is a word that you, you, you're familiar with, it's that word koinonia, it's often translated fellowship. It speaks of sharing together in something, this bond of life that unites us. So he says, I am thankful for your fellowship, literally your fellowship in the gospel, in this gospel that we share in, in this gospel that unites us, in view of your fellowship, in view of your participation, in view of your partnership. Maybe your translation has it because there are the two ideas. What does he mean when he says, in view of your fellowship, from the first day until now. Again, these commentaries want to make it an either-or proposition. That is, it is either their participation in, meaning their acceptance of the gospel, or their partnership in, meaning their propagation of the gospel. Okay? But Paul says, from the first day until now. Well, obviously, when he speaks... Of the first day, he means the first day that he preached the good news of Jesus. He is obviously speaking of their conversion, how they believed the gospel and became Christians. He says, when I think of that, that brings me great joy. When I think of how you became Christians, confessing Jesus as as the Messiah, confessing him as your Savior, when you believed in his death, burial, and resurrection, man, that just brings me great joy. Now, to stop there a minute, Paul's in prison for preaching that gospel. He's suffering for the cause of Christ. He's been beaten countless times. He's been stoned, left for dead, persecuted, deposed, and imprisoned many times to include this current four-year imprisonment. He had every right, most would think, I would think, to be miserable about this very gospel he preached. God, I am serving you by telling people about you, and they respond by persecuting me, they'll eventually even kill me for it. I go to Philippi, I preach the gospel, spend the night in jail after being beaten. This thing is not working too well. Is that what he dwelt on? Is that what he thought about? No, he was thankful because here's the truth, some believed and it was, it was his remembrance of those who believed that brought him joyful thanksgiving. Meaning, the, meaning this, the gospel in the lives of other people can bring us joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's not all. Paul says, it gives me joy when I think about your participation, your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now. You see where the argument comes? Some people want to focus on the first day. Some people want to focus on the until now. You see, this means that the gospel had an ongoing impact uh, on these believers beyond their initial conversion. It changed their lives. And as he thought about changed lives, it brought him joy. Now, how did this gospel change their lives? How did they go on to participate in the gospel until now? I think, in addition to what we see on the screen, three very clear ways. First, they continue to live Gospel-centered lives as saints, holy ones. Remember that from last week? The gospel had not only saved them from the consequences of sin, it had rescued them from the clutches of sin. They were living lives consistent with the gospel. Not perfectly. That's why one of the reasons he's writing them is because of this disunity in the church. He's going to urge them at the end of this chapter to live lives worthy of the gospel but when he saw the ongoing effect of the gospel, the lives of brothers and sisters, even in the midst of his own suffering, when he saw them that this gospel works in your life, that brings me joy. In other words, I might be suffering for this gospel that I preach at the hands of those who oppose Christ, but look at what the gospel is doing in the lives of people who accept Christ. Second, they had shared their resources materially, generously for the good of the gospel. Here's a little peek at January twenty-seventh. This church blessed others financially. Second Corinthians Paul talks, he's writing to Corinth, and he talks about these Macedonian churches who joyfully gave. Listen to what he said. Now, brothers, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given um, in the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. That that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, (laughs) that sounds a little bit like Paul. In, in much affliction in abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of oh, participation in the support of the saints the saints in Jerusalem in their own poverty, they begged to help poor people. They just, let me just take a little aside and part the curtain a little more. Committed believers are generous believers, and they are generous with their resources to help those in need. That is what I want us to be here I believe that God is calling us to help those around us in need. We have been richly blessed, and it is time that we further. I'm not saying that we haven't, but it is time that we go on blessing the blessed and start blessing those in need. We'll talk more about that then, but I want us to be a generous church looking for ways for our wealth to overflow in liberality for the sake of the gospel. Not only did they give to Jerusalem, but we remember from our introduction to the book that they sent financial, to, financial support to Paul through Epaphroditus. So they participated in the gospel with their resources, caring for others in need and assisting in missionary work. Is that all? I think there's one more thing. Their participation in the gospel to the present day also included... They're sharing the gospel with others. That caused them to suffer just like Paul was suffering. At the end of the chapter, he'll say that they are experiencing the same conflict that he was. It wasn't their suffering that brought Paul joy. It was the cause of their suffering. They were like him in the midst of great opposition, proclaiming the truths of Jesus Christ such that he could speak of their partnership in the gospel. This brought him joy. What does this mean for us? It is an inevitable chain reaction. Look at that list. If we have been truly converted, if we truly believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then it will not only forgive our sins, it will begin a process of sanctifying us, making us more and more holy. And part of being holy is that we will become generous people, generous with our resources to help those around us. And then we will also be generous with the gospel, causing us to share it with other people, And some will believe. And it'll start this process all over again. And we can find joy when we see the gospel in the lives of others. There's nothing quite like it. That brings us to our last point. The very last verse. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus In the midst of great trial and personal suffering, Paul found joy when he saw the past and present life of the gospel and the lives of believers in Philippi, and he found joy in the confidence that the gospel life would go on to be perfected or matured until Jesus comes back. Despite their sufferings, despite the opposition, despite the persecution, despite even being poured out as a drink offering, Paul could find joy because God, who began the good work in these believers, was faithful, he would carry it on to completion. Now, God began the work. Don't miss that. When did God begin the work in these Philippian believers? Ten years before, when Paul made his way to the city, f- found a few god on the side of a river, and preached the gospel, and God began the work, because Luke tells us that as Paul preached to Lydia that God opened her heart to respond to the message. You see, God was the initiator. He began the good work of the gospel in Philippi. And, and, and Paul is confident that he who began that work would complete it, meaning everything that we talked about on that list is going to continue. Uh, on that list is going to continue. Said this before a million times. I'm gonna keep on saying it. There will never be a time in the history of humankind when Christianity will be a dead religion. Because God will complete his work. He promised it. He began the good work. We'll carry it on to completion. So does this verse teach? Eternal security, that is, once you become a Christian, you will always be a Christian. Well, I I believe it does, but I believe that it teaches so much more. In fact, I believe it teaches what I prefer to call the perseverance of the saints. You see, once you become a Christian, you will continue in the faith, living the gospel life, continuing your participation and partnership in the gospel. It is all his work. He began it when you believed. He'll continue it until Jesus comes back. I believe that. You say, but wait, now I've, I've known people who started but didn't finish. They, they believe, but now they don't. I would say very simply, very gently, that God did not be, begin the work. They are like the parable of the sower that, that, that Jesus talked about. Remember, some of the seed fell on On the path, some fell on the rocks, some fell among the thorns, and it it sprang up. Sure looked like there was life there, but it soon died out. There was no lasting root. The seed that fell on the good soil produced, meaning it was participated in. It partnered in the gospel life, and it perseveres until the day of Christ. And as he thought of their first day, Up to the present day and into the future, this brought Paul and can bring us great joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. No no matter how difficult things become, Christ will, will continue the work that He began. He'll finish it. Listen to these words of Pastor Kent Hughes. As I reflect on my 50 years in Christ It is indeed God who has kept me. It is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but His grip on me. Thank God. I am not confident in my goodness. I am not confident in my character. All those those things are being changed. Don't miss that. I am not confident in my history. I am not confident in even even my, my, my reverend persona. I am not confident in my perseverance. But I am confident in God. And he, Paul he means, was confident that when Jesus returned, the work Jesus inaugurated, the work Jesus started, he would complete. But now, as we close, just one more thought for you. I, all of my life, have taken this verse and lifted it right out of its context. Way too much focus from this verse and in our individualistic society is placed on God's work in me. He who began the good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day uh, of Jesus Christ. That's true. It's very important. It's true. But the verse comes in the context of koinonia, fellowship. And can I remind you that you cannot have fellowship by yourself. Fellowship, participation together, partnership implies there's more than just you. In fact, the personal pronouns that Paul uses here are all plural. I thank my God in my remembrance of you all. Always offering prayer with joy for you all. In view of your Plural, your participation, your partnership. Well, that's why he uses the word koinonia. Because he can't use a singular and the word koinonia together. Your koinonia together in the gospel. And I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you all will carry it on to completion. So Paul's thanksgiving Is for their individual acceptance of the gospel? Yeah, maybe. That will be completed in each one of you? Yeah. But he is thankful for the work of the gospel in the corporate expression of believers called the church of Jesus Christ. And he is confident that the work of the gospel that God started in this church, and frankly in our church, will be carried on to completion until the day of Jesus as we together partner in the work. Here's the point. Paul was writing to a church facing persecution and division, and he starts right at the outset saying, in the face of this opposition, this horrible opposition out there, and this conflict, this division within, listen, I want you to know something, I am confident that you'll get this right, that that, that God who started the work will complete it. Your koinonia is deeper and stronger than any blood relationship that you enjoy with mere brothers and sisters that you'll gather with on Christmas Day. The fellowship that you enjoy on Christmas Eve as we gather here is much deeper and stronger than any blood. Because it's built on the basis of our sharing together and the saving work of Christ announced in his gospel. So... I am confident that God who began the work of the gospel in this church called Alliance Bible Fellowship will complete it. I am confident that it will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This means something to me. This means we need each other. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, Paul will say in chapter 2, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, same love, same spirit. We need each other for the work of the gospel, both within and without the church. God never intended you to be a singular fellowship. It can't happen. You can never do this alone. I am confident in the work of the Spirit, in this corporate expression of the body of Christ that we call Alliance, He who began the good work in you all will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Let's stand. Finished in the first service, and Shirley Dow walked up to me. Shirley Dow, who is a charter member of Alliance Bible Fellowship, 30 Something years ago, 34 years ago. She came up to me and she said, In the early days, we were facing some division in the church. And that week I was doing, I was doing my personal devotions in Philippians chapter one. And in my Bible, she said, I don't carry it because it's all taped up now, but in my Bible, next to Philippians 1:6, I wrote in the margin, ABF. I'm confident that he will carry ABF to completion. She said when we had the beam signing, remember that, those of you who are here, we, we went out and we wrote verses on the beams that are now covered. She wrote Philippians 1, 6. Father, I am confident that you who began the work in us will carry it on to completion. So may we together... Join arms and do participate, partner in the work of the gospel until the day Jesus comes. In his name we pray, amen.